From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. If the purpose of a spring game is to have a blast and get fans salivating for the fall, it's safe to say mission accomplished for Dan Mullen and crew. The Gators set off some daytime fireworks last Saturday, scoring a total of 95 points in the exhibition and elevating expectations for next season. On today's show, we'll recap the game and what it means for the 2019 campaign, lay out the latest arrivals and potential departures for basketball, discuss a historic feat for softball, look at how baseball found success through a shakeup, and recall epic concert experiences on the eve of Garth Brooks in the Swamp with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, one year after a shocking diagnosis ended his Gator career before it ever started, we'll check in with Randy Russell to see how he's adjusting to life without football. But first, nearly 40,000 fans flocked to Gainesville last weekend hoping to get a glimpse of the future and it's safe to say they like what they saw. But what does it mean? That's the question we posed to Scott and Chris to open this week's roundtable. If the offense looks like that during the regular season, the Gator fans would have nothing to complain about. We know that that's not going to be the case. Uh, the game was staged for some offensive fireworks, Adam. Um, Felipe Frank, so like I, I've told a couple people on Twitter, you know, well, the defense was vanilla. That's true. Uh, they were playing base packages. That's true. But guess what? You know, that's what a good quarterback does. He takes advantage of those, and uh, he makes the right throws. And, uh, you know, I thought you saw that from Felipe. And the receivers obviously had a big day. Trayvon Grimes stood out. Uh, most importantly, I think they know that the offensive line still has a lot of work to get where it needs to be before the season opener. So, they said, let's showcase our skilled players because that's going to be the strength of the offense regardless with starting quarterback returning, a veteran receiver core, LaMichael P. Ryan at running back and some good depth there. I mean, they're probably positioned, at least in the skilled players, as good as we've seen them since the Tebow era. Uh, how good they are in 2019 is going to be based a lot on how well the offensive lineman comes around. Uh, they got some work to do there. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they add a, you know, a grad transfer over the summer to add to the mix. But I thought overall, you know, the spring game is a spring game, Adam. I've never taken a lot out of them, good or bad, unless it's an injury. But if you're a fan sitting there watching that, hey, guess what? That's that's what Florida fans like. They like to see the quarterback make plays. They like to see the offense score points. They did that, and I thought they did it in a, a pretty efficient manner uh, with what they faced. Yeah, I think the score was – 21-14 at the end of the first quarter. <laughs> and I went back and looked at a, there was a must-champ uh, spring game that was 13-10. to 10. And, <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was 21-14 in this game. That's before the they put the razzle-dazzle with Lito oh, Shepard yeah. and, and Chris Doring in and all that. And yeah, people want to come out and see up and down the field. And, you know, do you take a spring game seriously? Not completely, no. Spring practice is much more important than the spring game, obviously. But this guy, help me with this. Uh, the quote that uh, Dan Mullen made after the game, 
he talked about he liked how Felipe Franks uh, improvised some in the offense and wasn't just relying on the offense to make the play for him. Is that kind of what the point he was making, Scott? No, I mean he he used the offense and the you know the the players around him to get points to make things happen instead of just executing the plan. And to me, that was kind of a telling quote because I know last year so much of the discussion around Felipe was okay. He, he's new to this system. Uh, Mullins making it simple for him uh, as long as he goes out and execute and it doesn't make mistakes and the defense plays well, the Gators are going to be in most games. And we saw that a lot early on. But I think if you look at that last four-game stretch when they averaged, what, 45 points and 522 yards a game, you start to see Felipe make some things happen on his own, recognizing defenses, recognizing what players – uh, would have the greatest chance to succeed in the uh, on a specific play if he could get the ball to him, and I think that's what he was saying, Chris. He he just was doing more of that uh, the other day because he there were several plays to be made, made, but he was making the right ones and getting it to the to the guys who were scoring touchdowns, and that's that's what you want out of your quarterback. Yeah, and we and we've never had any doubt about him relative to his uh, to his arm strength and and athleticism, and uh, you know I don't have the numbers right in front of me, Adam, but I mean that I think that the game only combined for it, it, there weren't a lot of running plays. There weren't a lot of I think it was twenty two rushes, and I think eleven of them total were by quarterbacks, which means there was there was a sack in there, and they were t- playing tag on sacks and stuff, or a couple design runs or something like that. This was about playing pitch and catch. He had some really really nice throws, and like Scott said, that they weren't doing a whole lot of things defensively. They weren't they weren't disguising blitzes. I don't even know if they were blitzing at all because I know a lot of these spring games. You're, you're you're not going to hit the quarterback, so quarterback can stand back there confidently and mm-hmm. and wing it a little bit. But I know you love it, Adam. When I go to my John Gruden impersonation, it's literally and, my favorite and, thing. And John and John Gruden, while he's one of the most overrated quarterback gurus of all time, he <laughs> sure he's sure fun to watch when it's talking about quarterbacks. I remember when he used to talk to me because I like a quarterback with some charisma. Okay. <laughs> I a guy in a huddle with some charisma. And I, by that, he means a guy who can go off script a little bit and make a play. And the more confidence Felipe Franks gets in the offensive system, the more he'll be able to probably go off script and, uh, and make plays with his legs and certainly with his arms. And, you know, maybe this is the start of him getting there. But actually, the start was the last four games of last season because he was really, really good over that stretch uh, as both a runner and a passer. And maybe we're about to see him make another step as a passing quarterback because, like Scott said, he, he certainly does have some uh, some weapons on the outside to play with. Yeah, I think it's amazing, too, because think about the conversation at the end of last season. It was almost just, let's get through this, and then it can be Emory Jones in the spring. And now, I mean, it's really about Felipe Franks. So the conversation turned so drastically based on the way the season finished and the way he performed to the point where... I don't think a lot of people are are thinking this is a quarterback battle going into the fall, which we just assumed was a a foregone conclusion just a few months ago. No, it's not. And uh, Emory Jones out there or or Kyle Trask or uh, any of those guys that they sent out there, I mean, Felipe Franks was the was the best quarterback, and it wasn't even close. Now, having said that, this time last year, I I won that impressed with Emory Jones as a thrower. His accuracy wasn't very good. And I think I said that last week. Mm-hmm. He was better in the fall, and you know, a little bit better. I think he had a turn. I think he threw an interception in the in the spring game, but who cares? Uh, but no, I mean, we're, the the conversation now, as far as how good this team is going to be, is about the offensive line and mm-hmm. linebacker play and rushing the quarterback and uh, some other stuff. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to sit there and say, slam my fist on the table and say the quarterback position's fixed. 
but there's no doubt that everyone feels a lot better about it than they would have six months ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, halfway through, after the Georgia game, right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> they should feel better about the quarterback situation right now than any time since Tim Tebow was here. Really? There you uh, go. That's where I think the quarterback situation is. Wow. And that doesn't mean Felipe Franks is going to win the Heisman or anything this year. But I just think that with what they have around him, with his development, with the coaching he's getting. Especially with the coaching he's getting. Yeah. That's where the biggest <laughs> that's the face, and that's where the biggest difference is right yeah, now. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. And he, even Emory Jones had an interesting quote, I thought, the other day after the game. He said that uh he was asked you know, about getting here and having to wait his turn and he says, Look, you know, I did come in thinking I was gonna play early, but I realized I had a lot to learn and then the next question was what has he seen in Felipe? He says, look, man, I see them coaches getting that guy better every day. I mean, we all see it. And he, he admitted he sees it. So I, I thought that was a mature answer from memory. But also, it's not just us. It's the players. Uh, you can tell just watching Felipe Franks, you know, do interviews after the game. Though. I mean, the guys, he's truly done a 180 in his body language and stuff, dealing with the media. He's just more confident. And that's that breeds success, obviously. And Again, I think Emory Jones will have a place in the offense in 2019. I, I think Dan Mullen loves to run different looks out there if the offense uh, is maybe uh, sputtering at times. But I, but this is clearly Felipe Franks. He's he's the guy. The team, uh, you know, is counting on to be the guy at quarterback this year. Yeah, and let's just and let's not forget about the whole Emory Jones thing because of this great rule for freshmen. He, the guy's a registered freshman this year. Mm-hmm. He got some really good experience last year in a season that basically didn't count. Playing late in the season, playing against Georgia, uh, playing early in the season. The NSA finally did something good for you know for a student athlete, making that rule, being able to play four games over the course of a season instead of having to have it in the first, whatever it was, 30% of the season. So a guy like Emory Jones can say something like that and maybe can step back and be a little more, have his head more into developmental thinking, knowing that I didn't just waste a season or – I didn't get anything out of season because I think he got a lot more out of a season like last year. Granted, if you're only going to play four games, then just about you know any other way he could have done that in the previous business model. Good for him. So I was going to ask you, if you're Dan Mullen, what are you feeling the best about leaving the spring? But I know you would both probably say the quarterback position, the offense. And then I was going to ask you, what would you be worried about if you're Dan Mullen exiting the spring? And you would both say the offensive line. So instead of asking either one of those questions, I instead want to know which newcomer were you most impressed by? Because we know the quarterbacks, we've seen these guys. Who did you see on Saturday that you said, wow, that's a guy that can make plays in the fall that maybe you didn't think about prior to then? I mean, if you're talking about the nine freshmen who joined the program since January, I mean, the one who's most notable up to this point, and we don't have a large sample size, is Chris Still, the defensive back, a freshman. He's going to play this year, once uh, Marco Wilson gets back to full speed, you got him and C.J. Henderson. You got Trey Dean moving to the star position. So Chris Dill's going to play, and he got a lot of work uh, in the spring game. can't say he did anything outstanding uh, on Saturday, but I, I just think he's a guy that they've gotten uh, work so he can be ready by the fall. That's been a, a mission of theirs. Uh, and one guy that does kind of stand out, he's not a newcomer, but he's not a guy we talk about a lot. It's Kyrie Campbell, the defensive tackle. Uh, you know, you just hear, you know, so many times in these interviews, you hear the same stuff over and over after during spring practice. But more than once this spring, uh, one of his teammates said, watch out for that guy. Uh, he's really going to have a big year for us. And, then, you know, sure enough, he had a really good game on Saturday in the Orange and Blue game. I, 
think he had like six tackles, had a sack. Uh, he just looks uh, like he's primed for a breakout season. But, you know, I think Dan Mullen would like for us to have answered an offensive lineman because that's where they need some uh, newcomers to stand out. And, and of the guys, of the freshmen who are in that mix right now, I think Kingsley Egwakon, the center, he, he's the one who right now at this point we know is going to play quite a bit in his freshman season. Uh, being a center, Buchanan's got that position locked down, so maybe he'll cross-train more in the fall, but mostly in the spring he was he was strictly a backup center. So he's a guy that they would definitely like to uh, make a lot of uh, steps in his development and be a better player by the time they face Miami. Well, I mean, I'll, this is a little embarrassing, but John Huggins intercepted the pass and took it to the house, like second series of the game. I was like, who is that guy again? <laughs> That shows you something about how deep the secondary is. Because, I mean, John Huggins was a, a freshman last year and played some last year. He even had interception during the season. He was in special teams a lot. But, uh, again, I had to take a double take. And I said, this this guy redshirt, this guy kind of blew past me. So there he was very much in the mix and making a really good play. And uh, it just made me think, gosh, they have guys on this team that can do stuff like that that we haven't even seen yet. If you ask me about uh, uh, – the offensive line, no offensive lineman is ever going to distinguish himself in an orange and blue game or spring game of, of any kind, just about, unless it's an army and they're running the triple option or something. <laughs> but um, people were worried about uh, the tackle position, and it's it's going to be Stone Foresight. And he's a big man. He's a, he's a, he's going to be a fourth-year junior come the fall. And they're probably a little more further along with their confidence in him than, than maybe they thought going into the season. But uh it sounds like he's kind of got that position there, and they talked about also Chris Bleich, uh, redshirted last year as a as a true freshman, kind of uh, on that right guard spot. And uh, Scott mentioned a guy who may be cross training at, at center and guard in there in the mix also. But uh, I, I can't say enough about what John Hevesy did with an offensive line that though wasn't young last year, wasn't very good, and had a lot of concerns this time last year. So if these guys are diligent and do their Nick Savage work in the weight room and do what they're supposed to do during the off season and then take that on, on into the fall. Uh, maybe they can accelerate the development and get there a little, little sooner because obviously they'll have to be when you open the season against a Miami versus a Charleston Southern, you want to be further ahead uh, than probably normally. There will no doubt be more football to talk about in the coming weeks and months, but now I want to turn our attention to basketball and, and we knew there was going to be some news coming out in the next few weeks, although this was not the news that most people expected, Chris. I guess this is a byproduct of having really good freshmen is that some of those freshmen may follow the one and done model. That's not something we've seen a lot here at Florida. It hasn't happened since Bradley Beal, but your take on uh, on Andrew Nemhard testing the waters here. Well, it's only happened twice in the history of University of Florida basketball. Um, Bradley Beal in 2012 and L. Harvey in 2000. Uh, both of them are first-round draft picks. Bradley Beal was the third pick in the draft. Andrew Nemhard is doing what uh, a lot of underclassmen are doing. They're going into this uh, uh, advisory board, putting their name in there, then going to get the feedback, which is initial. It comes back in a written form. That's the first step in the process. Then they decide after they hear the feedback if they want to take it to the next process, which is actually going and working out with other such uh, players. Okay, and then it, it kind of progresses. And at any time you can you can stop mm -hmm. and come back. And there's deadlines and what have you. Ultimately, uh, I don't know the deadline off the top of my head. It's it, it's in May when Andrew Nemro will have to decide if he's going to really try to be drafted or turn pro or whatever. And, you know, turning pro nowadays, you make a lot of money overseas. 
Andrew Nemhard obviously was a player. He started day one. Um, he got here, started every game of the season. He was terrific in terms of being a playmaker, stepped into a certainly a high-pressure situation, taking over for Chris Chios, the number one assist player in history. And he really, really got better as far as his uh, offensive game is concerned. People, I'm, I've seen it on Twitter, say, what, what is he doing? You know, he's slow. He's not that good. Well, you know what? Pros love the way he plays. They love his length. They love the pace he plays with. And pace is more important than speed. I've said before, I made this point, he had better bigs to throw lobs to and kick the ball inside at Montverde Academy than he's had at Florida. So imagine him being in a, in a higher level of basketball with a more evened out roster. Now, if things break the way Florida hopes they do and, and they land some of the guys that they want to land that they're trying to romance here, grad transfers and what have you, if he comes back, he'll have a chance to play with some much better bigs. Next year, he'll for sure have a chance to play with some healthier ones uh, who didn't get a chance to play much this season. But uh, people that are thinking Andrew Nemhart's leaving, that's not necessarily a fait accompli at all. Um, he's a smart kid. He loves school. He loves uh, his two uh, freshman classmates, Noah Locke and Keontae Johnson. To be honest with you, I thought Keontae Johnson was going to do this thing too. Hmm. There have been a couple – places i've been um over the course of last season where i ran into nba guys and those are the two players that they were looking at the most on florida they certainly have a have a future in the pros but i'm um, obviously mike white would love to see andrew nemhard back but uh they've taken some steps some that you know people may have seen on social media some that can't be talked about by university employees in terms of protecting themselves with regard to uh, the point guard position. Obviously, Trey Mann's coming in, and he's a uh, combo guard, but certainly he would have been the backup point guard last year on this team as a high school senior um, because Florida didn't really have a true point guard backup to Andrew Nemhard last year. So they'll be equipped if Andrew leaves, but I certainly uh, wouldn't just make the assumption he's leaving because uh, he's going through this process right now. Chris, as you mentioned, there are things that we can talk about and things that we can't. Uh, one thing we can now talk about is one of the, I'm sure, multiple transfers we're going to see coming in to men's basketball. And that is, of course, from that pipeline that starts at Louisiana Tech. Yes. Well, there there's a significant uh, uh, factor in terms of a pipeline for Louisiana Tech. But uh, no one in Florida right now recruited Anthony DeRuji, the, uh, the small forward uh, who is transferring from Louisiana Tech to Florida. His paperwork arrived um, on Wednesday, visited here last weekend. Six seven, uh, small forward, um, started all 33 games last year uh, at La Tech. He averaged 12.2 points, 6.2 rebounds, athletic kid. Um, what I like about this is that uh, you're covering yourself in terms of a guy like Keontae Johnson. Scotty Lewis coming in, he could be one of those one-and-dones also next year. Billy Donovan liked this toward the end of his time at Florida. It was his business model. He liked to have a sit-out guy. Because you get 13 scholarships, all 13 aren't going to play, all 13 want to play. But when you got a sit-out guy that knows he can't play, all he can do, all he does is practice, and he's not worrying about minutes. He's not getting phone calls from uh, ancillary people saying, "Why aren't you playing more?" and everything. And um, this is a guy who will come here and be on the scout team for a year, get rolled into the system. And know it by the time he's he's ready to play. You know, other than the statistics I just rolled off, I haven't I haven't seen this guy play. Can't give a whole lot of uh, background on him, other than the fact that I know Florida went out looking for a sit out transfer that could play on the wing, and they obviously liked this guy. This guy he was going to get a lot of offers, but he liked what he saw right away and decided to stay here, uh, sign with Gainesville right out of the box, and 
with verbal commitments that are out there. There's going to be, by the time we have our podcast next week, there will be more uh, incoming freshmen who will have signed. There's certainly grad chancers that are in there. They're in the mix. Um, but as of right now, with the verbal commitments and signed letters and who's coming back, assuming Andrew Nemars comes back, Florida has one scholarship left. And that's going to be a grad transfer big. Um, there's any number of them out there. Uh, Florida would like to shoot for the moon and bring in a really good one if possible. But this could be something that uh, you know rolls out a few more weeks before that's determined. I want to talk some softball now. And this isn't about the series against Alabama or their win against Florida State. But this past week was the NPF draft, which is the Professional Softball League. And Florida did something pretty remarkable with Kelly Barnhill and Amanda Lorenz as the number one and the number two overall picks. Not something that's happened too often in history. It certainly hasn't happened for the Gators, but hardly for anybody. I mean, I don't know right off the top of my head in any sport where that's happened. It may have, but to have two of your current players go one-two in a professional draft in your sport, uh, that speaks volumes about what kind of talent that uh, Tim Walton has recruited into the program. And, of course, if you follow Gators softball, which most of our audience on here does, I mean, they've, they're very familiar with Kelly Barnhill and Amanda Lorenz. I mean, Kelly Barnhill has been the ace uh, for three or four years now. Amanda Lorenz, she's the big bat in the lineup on a team that hasn't hit this season as we've uh, seen historically. The Lorenz is still having a big season. And, you know, professional softball is still in its infancy. Uh, I think a lot of the goal is for players to get that exposure and continue to play after college so perhaps they can play on Olympic teams. And I've got to believe that that's uh, kind of part of this uh, plan for Barnhill and the Lorenz. But at the same time, you know, to get to continue your career on a professional level, it's got to be a thrill and something that a few years ago that they wouldn't even have the opportunity to, to do. So after the Gators season wraps up, Kelly Barnhill will go and join the Chicago Bandits, and Amanda Lorenz will go to Orlando with the USSSA Pride. So outside of what's going on for softball at the next level, at this level right now, things are actually going pretty well because they're coming off of a sweep on the road of Texas A&M, which was huge, and that followed a home sweep of Arkansas. So softball, getting things rolling in the SEC. On the baseball front, it took a little bit of dramatics for them to claim the series last week against South Carolina, but now they're going on the road again and a chance to try and right some of the wrongs they've had recently. Yeah, they're you know they're going on the road in the SEC, which has uh, been unkind to the Gators so far, but uh, they're going out to LSU, which is always a big challenge, even when the Gators have been really good, ranked. Uh, that's been a big challenge, but now they're going out of their own rank, but they do take some momentum with them, Adam, and you, you said it yourself. I mean, boy, it was dramatic. They needed it. You know, they they played South Carolina at home last weekend. They split the first two games, and it was not looking good for the Gators in the third game of the series. They were down to the final out in the last inning, and and Jordan Butler, who, uh, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan, he really tinkered with his lineup last weekend trying to get some stuff happening. So he had Jordan Butler in at first base, and uh, he'd already had three hits, and he steps to the plate and, and launches a three-run homer that suddenly took a 4-3 deficit into a 6-4 win, and uh, McEaton Stadium went crazy. Jordan Butler and his teammates went crazy, and that's really the highlight moment so far of this season. And they followed that up with a home win against Jacksonville in a midweek game. And now, like we said, they're going out to uh, LSU and a chance to uh, play an LSU team that's battling some injuries. And the Gators have not done well in their first, what, two SEC road series at Vanderbilt. 
and uh, Texas A&M, they got hammered pretty bad. So it'll be interesting to see if they can um, sustain some of the momentum that Butler's home run gave them because uh, if you saw the replay, Adam, you saw the reaction. Those guys have been waiting on a moment like that, and we've seen it before in baseball. One of those moments, a magical moment, can really turn around a season, but that's going to go back to how good the pitching is. And one notable aspect of this LSU series is you know, it looks like Kevin O'Sullivan, he's going with Tommy Mace, Jack Lefwich, and, and Christian Scott. So it looks like Tyler Dyson, who entered the year as the number one starter, it uh, looks like he's not even going to get a start out there. So they're still trying to get him right. So it'll be interesting if, if maybe some more tweaks to the pitching rotation result in a uh, good, uh, good performance like uh, tweaks in a lineup did. Moving on to this week's PAT, this weekend is Garth Brooks in the Swamp, which is very cool. And I'm not even a country fan, but I think it's, it's cool when you have an artist in a venue that's unusual. You get huge crowds. It's not just a typical stop on a tour, but something really special. So my question for you guys is, what is the biggest concert you've ever been to? Not the best, because the best may have been in a dive bar somewhere. I want to know when you were with tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people at a show that you still remember. My senior year of high school, Adam, was uh, 1978. Not to date myself, but I just dated myself. <laughs> They were going to do something really different, uh, an environmentalist kind of uh, tribute at the Washington Monument. And I attended the very first Earth Day okay, hmm, at the that. Washington Monument. And it was a concert with Jackson Brown and just him and his piano. And I want to say there was probably 300,000 people there Wow! on the mall and, and uh, at the Washington Monument. And um, I don't think that I've been in a stadium that had that many people in it before. So I'm going to have to say that was the one because uh, – even though I was born, I was not at Woodstock. I don't think that would have been the kind of a scene that my mom and dad would have taken me to. <laughs> Mine is actually of all places at the same place where Chris just spoke of, the uh, mall there in Washington. A few years later, I remember uh, my dad and my brother and I and my stepmom, we were on a little East Coast summer vacation, happened to be in Washington, D.C., July 4th, and the Beach Boys played... <laughs> On the monument, there was hundreds of thousands of people there. I don't know. I'd have to go back and research it. But I remember it being a huge deal at the time. And I remember, gosh, it was the biggest crowd I've probably ever been in maybe in my life still. I mean, it was a big event. Summer, middle of summer, July 4th, Washington, D.C. And the Beach Boys, a pretty uh, all-American day. So, yeah, that, that's the one that stands out. And I've been to a lot of stadium concerts over the years. And they're always a different kind of vibe because – out, you know, it's not as intimate, obviously, as even being in an arena and certainly not a nightclub. But I, I remember going, well, probably my biggest show I've ever been to was in a stadium was uh, one that Chris may have been to at well, because he loves both of these bands. Guns N' Roses and Metallica. Hmm. It was at the Citrus Bowl. And there was probably a good 60 or 70,000 people there back in 1992. Chris, were you there? Uh, not for a Metallica concert, Scott, no. <laughs> But I was at the uh, last concert in Gainesville uh, at the in the swamp, which was the Rolling Stones, uh, 1994. It was the day after the choke of the doke. Wow! We, they had the the scaffolds that spread out of the arms uh, all along, and like Mick Jagger was running up into what you know basically would be the part of the student section. I remember that I just, very very well. I just posted a blog on that earlier, and Mick Jagger, I, I found the quote from him that night. He says something like, "Well, well, Gainesville." 
I hear you have a pretty good football team around these parts or something like that. <laughs> of course, <laughs> he was probably totally unaware of a lot of those fans being bummed out from the choke it dope. <laughs> right. And it, and so if someone told him it was, they had a good football team. He might've thought they had a good soccer. Exactly. Team exactly. Yes. The best I could do for you guys is uh Bruno Mars at music midtown in Atlanta a couple years ago, probably a hundred thousand plus. Uh, and if we're going to be at an enclosed venue, a concert, I know that you guys wish you'd been at probably Taylor Swift uh, in Mercedes-Benz Stadium last year. So I'm, I'm, I'm really shocked I didn't see either one of you guys there, as a matter of fact. So Scott will be live tweeting from the Garth Brooks concert, at least we hope. Uh, Chris and I will not be there, so Scott will have to provide the uh, the experience for us via social media, and hopefully it'll take some good pictures. But in any case, they'll also be tweeting about Gator Sports, because that's what they do all the time, at Gators Chris, at Gators Scott, and you can check out their content on FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam, and thank you, Scott. Tell all your friends in low places I said hello. <laughs> While your eyes were trained on the field last Saturday, you probably didn't notice one individual on the sidelines. Randy Russell is one year removed from the physical that changed his life, as Florida doctors discovered a rare heart defect that forced him to step away from the game he loves. But as you're about to hear, that hasn't tempered his spirit or his dedication to the Gators. We began our chat by asking the question everyone in Gator Nation wants the answer to. How is Randy doing? Health-wise, I've been, I've been great. Um, I actually have a, a big test coming up soon, so could I would let me know how, how good it's been getting. You know, when we spoke last year, you were still very early kind of in processing this really life-changing diagnosis. How has your outlook or perspective changed in the years since then? How do you think you've grown on that front? If I could do it all over again, I probably wouldn't change anything for the simple fact that, you know, it, it helped me grow, helped me become like a better man, a better person. So, you know, I wish things would have been different, but I do feel like I will be able to overcome this and I do feel like I'll be able to play again one day. But I'm, I'm glad that, you know, everything happened the way it did, you know, now. Uh, before, you know, I just looked, I used to blame everything, but I have a different outlook, you know, in life and just everything, I have a totally different perspective on everything. So I'm just glad everything just happened. I know that it was really important to you to find ways to stay involved with the team. So going back to last year, as the summer turned to fall and camp began, uh, in what ways were you able to make an impact despite not being able to play? I just being at practice, I'm just being like more support for guys. And that goes a long way to just telling them that, just letting you know somebody's watching you and somebody cares. So that goes a long way, you know, just for a lot of guys. And, you know, like on our off days or whatever, like I will, some guys would like want to work out with me. You know, you, you told me I did this in practice and it helped me fix it. So a lot of different things like that. So whether it's, you know, going to practice, talking to them, motivating them, or maybe we're working out on the weekends, just trying to fix some of the mistakes in the games where I practice. So anyway, I can, I was just helping some of my guys. What do you remember from the first game of last season and, and what was going through your mind at that point? I had a lot of goosebumps, but I remember crying. With our team chaplain, you know, just uh, prior to the game, just I was in just in the locker room crying, just just crying. Like it's my first season without like playing football, so it hurt it. But I know that you know it will become a day where I may be able to come and play again. So I just you know, I was very sad at that moment, but you know I just had to control what I can control, and you know, that was something that I couldn't control at that time. So you know, I was sad, but at the same time, you know, I was happy for everybody else. Some of the people that came in early with me. Like Amari, you know, I was happy for him. He was able to play the first game. So, you know, it was, it was bittersweet. But for the most part, you know, I was happy for them because I know, like, we came a long way. I know that same day you also started a tradition with Voshan Joseph before that first game. So can you tell us about that and why that was so meaningful for you? 
Um, I knew Beauchamp like since forever, since like almost middle school. And um, you know, since I got here, you know, we were like family, like whatever he needed, if he was down bad or sometimes coaches would ask me just to, you know, talk to Beauchamp because I could connect with him better than you know the coaches may be able to. But you know, that was just something we started and he, he basically took me under his wing and told me, you know, every game you know, was gonna be for me and I really appreciated that. So I just, you know, pray for him every game, pray for his safety and just pray that, you know, he has a good game and a happy season. Midway through last season, the Players' Tribune did a really great piece on you that really amplified your story to a national audience. What was the response like to that, and what did it mean to you? Like I said, it was it was bittersweet as well, you know, for the simple fact that you know, you know, like it brought like a lot of memories, though, like it showed me how good I was, like on the field, like like the potential I had, and and also I just got a, I was able to, to talk and meet with a lot of different people. Um, I met my, my favorite player for the first time, Earl Thomas. Hmm. I mean, he watched the story and then he reached out to me. And then there's a lot of guys I knew prior, like um, Antonio Brown, Cam Chancellor, like a lot of those guys, you know, they seen the story, they shared it, and, you know, they reached out to me as well. So you know, it was good being able to hear from, like, you know, a ton of people, a ton of celebrities, from a ton of people that, you know, said that they looked up to me and just a ton of people that were willing to help me go through the process. So and it was good being able to get my story out there so I just could see it. Who was the most unexpected person that you heard from as a result of that? I'd probably say Earl Thomas. Like, that's before every game. You know, I used to watch his highlights. Like, before any of my games, I watched his highlights. And then, you know, I just really admired him, like, the person he was, and then also what he did on the football field. So I just tried to just pretty much model my game after him. And it was very shocking for him just to, you know, reach out to me. I remember when we talked last year, there were a lot of people who had gone through similar situations who you had connected with and reached out to, more so than than just the big names. And I'm sure it's great to hear from big names like Earl Thomas, like Cam Chancellor. Who are some additional contacts you've made who've been able to really relate to your story or say, hey, I've been there. Here's what I went through. Um, There's so many people. I can't really, I can't even give you a name, but it's probably over 50 to like 100 people I probably came in contact with that not only had like my condition, but had some sort of condition. And we were basically just, just venting to each other, you know, about how, how they cope with it. Like it wouldn't even be athletes. It would just be like, you know, normal people. Some, some of them would be older, some would be younger, some of them would be like middle aged, but just, I would just hear from all types of people and like they'll reach out to me and, and I'll respond to everybody just because it was interesting, you know, hearing their story and how like a lot of us were sim- are similar. In line with that, what's the best advice you think you've received in the last year? The best advice is probably um, just continue like, to keep your faith and just basically like, everything will work out in its favor and everything will work out as you want it to. And I would hear that a lot before, but, you know, like it didn't make sense at first, but like looking back a year later, like I'm like I'm really like in a good place right now. I'm definitely like in a way better space. So it makes it definitely makes sense. But you know, at the time it didn't, but, but it definitely makes a lot of sense right now. I would imagine that you've got good days and, and you've got bad days like anybody else when you, you, know, you try and kind of cope with this. When you have those tough moments, who are the people you turn to and, and how do they help? I've been learning just to get out of like some of my old ways. You know, like when I would have those days, I would just, you know, get in the shell and just exile from everything, exclude everybody out. Just go in my shell. I wouldn't talk to anybody, my mom, just nobody. But now um, I'm learning to just be able just to reach out more to my mom. But the most is probably my pastor. So me and him have like you know a great relationship. So where like whenever I'm feeling that, I just reach out to him, or he'll come see me. He'll come meet with me. But you know, he's been like one of the most influential in this whole process. You know, it's hard to stop an athlete from competing. So in what ways have you been able to stay physically engaged while still staying safe because of your condition? There's no stopping me. Once they, once I was told I can work out, 
I work out every day. Hmm. Sometimes not on Saturday, Sunday, but I work out every day uh, with one of our strength conditioning coaches. And um, and sometimes I work out, you know, during the day, and then sometimes at night with you know some of my teammates. Me and trading work out almost every night. Hmm. Sometimes after his practice, he'll work out. I'm just been keeping my body right. My body's probably in the best shape it's been. You know, even when I was in high school, like I, I'm probably like in the best shape of my life. So you know, they couldn't stop me once they told me I can work out. They they weren't <laughs> going to get me to stop. They weren't going to get me to to change me. So I've been working hard. Also about a watch to monitor like my heart rate and everything like that. So hmm. just been working hard every day and just, you know, monitoring that and just staying on top of that. But health wise, I feel the best I felt my whole life. I know you can't compete on the field, but I know you were a big hitter. So I'm sure you have a very strong competitive nature. What ways have you found to sort of feed that? Is it is it video games in, in the gym? How are you still finding ways to compete? I would definitely say that um, just just working out, just being able to release all that all that tension. Um, I just knew that you know, there was so much more like potential I had left, and I just knew like I feel like God told me like it wasn't it, but you know, I did need to take a break from the game. That's what I that's what I got from this whole thing. I just need to take a step back and just be able to just to reflect on life and reflect on what's important that I didn't understand before, but now that I do understand. With the additional free time, I would imagine that you have, uh, have you picked up any new hobbies or, or anything like that? I'll say cooking. Cooking is one of my, one of my hobbies, but oh. for the most part, I've been trying to load up on, on classes since I'm not doing anything as of now. I might as well just load up classes and get my undergrad as, as soon as possible because I take a test and the dozen like, you know, it's, it's no longer there or it, it's shrunk. So, but for now, I'm taking like the advantage that I have that the other guys don't have, which is time. So and I use that just to study and load up on all my classes. And the goal is to graduate in two and a half to almost three years. So wow. I'm kind of on that track right now. What are some of the more interesting classes you've taken lately? What what stood out to you? I want to say interesting about chemistry. Um, for the simple fact that it's the University of Florida, I feel like they just make the curriculum hard for no reason. So <laughs> that was probably one of the most like hardest classes I've ever taken, which it shouldn't be, but this is UF, it was definitely hard. So um, I'm taking like a medical terminology class. So like mm-hmm. the exams are like 300 questions. So I have to learn like tons of material and things like that. So that was probably like my favorite class. You know, just because I'm be able to learn more about my field in medicine. When it sounds like you probably got a lot of good study tips as well. Or do teammates ever reach out to you for help with some of their work since you've got more time than they do? <laughs> Definitely. Um, I got, I get tons of, bro. Can you can can you revise my essay? Can you prove it? Can you prove read it for me? You know, I get tons of them, but you know, I don't mind because it's it's helping them. And I know, like, you know, they sacrifice their time to be able to be dedicated to football. So, you know, when anybody reach out to me, I don't mind helping them. When we talked last year, I remember you said that this whole ordeal had you really thinking seriously about being a cardiovascular surgeon. Is that still your plan? Do you still want to be on that track or, or have you shifted into a new direction? I would say it's more broad now. I just, I'm focusing on like the medical field, you know, in its entirety. So I haven't really, you know, specifically chose what area, um, haven't really narrowed down. So I'm still kind of broad in what I want to do. I've been thinking about probably like physical therapy or like um, orthopedic, getting my bones and things like that. So I'm still undecided, but that's definitely still still one of my options. So clearly you're spending a lot of time studying, you're helping your teammates. There's got to be something you do for fun though. Other than working out, I'm trying to figure out what is it that you really do to have fun when you've got some time to unwind? There's no, I don't know. There's no fun though. I'm just, I just like I developed like a new attitude. I feel like I'm just a, a different person now. Like, and I don't really go out anymore. That's not my thing. I don't, hang out. I don't do much of that thing anymore. I just like to take care of my business. But I did get a dog in January. Oh, nice. That's probably the most fun I, I have with him. But for the most part, it's just taking care of business, taking care of school, make sure I'm eating right. I even changed my diet. I meal prep now, mm. work out, 
just try to stay consistent, try to be the same person every day. You've talked a lot about the importance of spreading your story so other people can be helped by it and maybe in some cases saved by it. What advancements have you made in the last year toward creating that meaningful impact? I know like a few schools want me to come and speak to them, some at home. I know it's a school here. Just, just There's like a lot of different speaking gigs a lot of people want me at. So you know, I've been just trying to do better with my public speaking so I can actually do those, you know, while I have the time. So I, I want to actually just get out in the community and serve more. That's, that's one of the things I want to do this year. Your story sparked a lot of people talking about just what it meant to be a Florida Gator and the way that the program really embraced you and helped you through this. I'm just curious for the ways that the, the coaching staff and support staff have been there for you, because you don't, you don't get to hear a lot of those stories, but I'm sure people are very curious about it. Uh, coach Tyrone, I'm this I'm strength conditioning coach that I told you about. Um, that's probably one of the most influential people like in my life right now. And I'm, I've only known him for like almost a year and a half. So I feel like without him, I don't know, honestly don't know where I'll be. I look at I look at him as like my big brother and he's helped me, you know, through this whole process. So, um, you know, without him, you know, I honestly don't know. I probably would have tried to transfer. But I honestly don't know. But he's he's the reason why, you know, I am who I am right now. So I thank him a lot for that. Final couple of things for you, Randy. I guess in your position, you almost get a coach's perspective of the team at this point. So from where you sit, who do you think is really impressed during spring ball and, and is set up for a big year come September? I would say trading um, for the simple fact that you know, I work with him every day and he, he just loves to work and, you know, like we talk every day and like, I just love where his mind is at. He, he knows that, you know, to be the best that you have to do more than everybody else because everybody else practices. So what are you doing to separate yourself? So he understands that and, you know, me and him work at that every day and he's also playing a new position. So um, I feel like he's going to have, you know, a great year and, you know, just for the simple fact that you know, he works so hard. Which incoming freshman has made the uh, the biggest impact on you? I would say Chris Steele. Um, just the way that he handles, like, you know, adversity. Like, when he got here, he was losing a lot of reps. But, you know, he never lost You know he never lost faith. He never lost his confidence. You know, he stood in the paint. And then as he worked at it more, as he, you know, learned to perfect his craft, you know, he got, he's gotten better. So him being in the fire that early has definitely like, matured him. And it will help him go a long way. Well, Randy, thank you so much for coming back and uh, giving us an update. I know Gator Nation continues to root for you, and uh, we wish you a lot of luck. Yes, sir. Anytime. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Head to FloridaGators.com for info on all of this week's action and make sure you come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.